0: Want to uh, take the opportunity to share with you uh, a little information about what's going on in another part of the church right now. Um, a few times a year, we have this new class that we've only been doing now for about a year and a half, called Membership Matters, and it is a uh, a six-week class where those who are new to Sunnybrook, or actually those who have been here for a while, um, can go and spend some time intentionally considering what membership means. What are some of the distinctive beliefs that we hold to here at Sunnybrook, and what does life in the church as a part of this family look like? And, uh, and we, we set this class up so that they get to spend time with, um, with several different staff members and elders, and right now, there's about 15 people going through this in the library, and uh, I would appreciate a couple of things. I'd appreciate your prayers for these, uh, these families represented here, a couple of college students as well. Um, in a couple of weeks, they're gonna come up here and kind of make the decision whether or not they wanna be a part of this family. And therefore, those are your brothers and sisters, not only in the church universal, but in the local context. And so they're about to become part of our family. And they're taking that very serious. So I'd, pray that, or I'd ask that you would pray uh, for them and for the decision that they're gonna make, and, uh, and that you would pray for the, the church to, to come together well around them. When you see them, um, introduce yourself, and, uh, and and treat them like they belong in your home, because they do. The other thing I'd ask you to pray for is uh, next month, um, I think nine of us are going to be leaving and going to Poland for uh, nearly two weeks, not quite two weeks. Um, we're going to... Um, go partner with a ministry that's already up and running there, been running there for a long time. But if you recall, Gina Wells used to be a Sunnybrooker. She is now in Kentucky leading the stateside version of this ministry. So we're going to Poland to, uh, it's an exploratory trip to see how Sunnybrook might be able to establish an ongoing relationship with this ministry and go to Poland on a, reg- on a regular basis. And I'd appreciate your prayers for that trip and, uh, and for the people of God in Europe um i've already let the the rest of the members on the trip know um they they know that international travel has its its complications takes longer to get through security gates you've got you've got customs and all of these things but i've i've let them know that hey um because you're going to be with me it's just going to take a little longer than normal um i i tend to make things more complicated not always on purpose sometimes just for my own amusement but i make things more complicated um Since I was a teenager, um, every time I travel internationally, every time, I am randomly selected for additional security measures. I don't know why, I guess I'm just not a very trustworthy, or I don't look very trustworthy. Um, it, It might have something to do with how I travel, Um, When I travel, I wanna be comfortable. So I don't shave for probably two weeks leading up to it. Um, I wear a baseball hat and sunglasses and very comfortable clothes. It's a look my wife describes as adorably homeless. Um, (laughs) But you add all that onto the complexion that I have and I just look like we should check that guy's bag again. Um, And they do, every single time, takes forever. Um, It was time for me to renew my passport this year. And I went um, and I went to, to the post office to have the new photo taken on the one week of the year that I did have a full beard. And uh, so yesterday it gets delivered by FedEx. And I came home. I said, hey, Rach, I saw I got the notification. My passport's here. Did you open it? Did you get it? And she said, yes. And I looked at your picture. Ten more years on the no-fly list is kind of your destiny. <laughs> Randomly selected every single time. Um, the truth is I get it life's not fair. The uh, TSA agents, everybody involved, they got a job to do and they do it well, okay? So I don't blame anybody. I I just kind of get a kick out of it. It is, I can call this shot from the parking lot of the airport. Watch, guys. I'm going to slow this down. I get it. Life's not fair. This is a general maxim that we, we all agree is in place. The fact that things aren't fair, this is how I parent. I tell my kids all the time, hey, life's not fair. From their perspective, Maybe not for them, but I always seem to get what I want, so they might think I'm just lying to them. But life's not fair. It's true. We don't like it, but it's true. Another general truth, uh, more of a children's proverb, is this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We say this all the time to tell kids that, hey, so and so is being mean to you. Just write it off. It's just words. It's not like they're physically assaulting you. At least you have your health, right? We say this all the time because we want to believe that what others say about us doesn't have any power. What we mistakenly say about others can be written off as an accident. The truth is, words do matter and words can hurt, and I'm not talking about feelings, but they can lead to disaster. You would never explain something like this to a guy like William Tyndale, who in the early 1530s decided on the heels of the Protestant Reformation that the the Christians in England need a Bible in their own language. No one reads Latin anymore except at the highest academy, we have Greek translations of the New Testament. We're working on Hebrew um, translations. So why don't we take all of that? And William Tyndale says, hey, I'll do the hard work for everybody. I'll take those texts, translate them to English, because I think every man, woman, and child ought to be able to read the words of Christ in their own language. I think it sounds brilliant. I think it sounds noble. Great idea. The church in Rome thought otherwise. That sounds terrible. You're going to leave interpretation up to just anyone. Did everything they could to stop it. Um, He had things in his favor because his king, Henry VIII, was not getting along too well with Rome. Well, what if we just set up our own church here on this island and have a little bit of a break? For William Tyndale, that might be helpful when it comes to writing this English translation, if we break from Rome. But the circumstances that, that surrounded such of a break from Rome were Henry VIII's inappropriate treatment of his wife and subsequent wives. And William Tyndale said, no, you can't do this. You cannot divorce her for the reasons you want to divorce her. You cannot do this. So for a, a host of enemies that he had made, the allegations started to pop up. Heretic. A heretic today is a relatively benign word. You, you get labeled a heretic, See you, you can just go to another church. It's really that easy. For Tyndale to be called a heretic meant death, capital crime. And they did it in kind of a brutal way. I tell you what, let's strangle him first. Then when he's good and dead, let's go ahead and burn him just to be sure. That was William Tyndale. Words do hurt, apparently. I don't think you could Explain this phrase away to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 26. We're at the end of it. We've come from the Passover, where Jesus has explained the new lamb's blood that is going to cover over those who follow Yahweh. We've come from Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we've come from his arrest at night. And at the end of chapter 26, we, we see this, you could call it a bit of a pre-trial hearing. The Jews have decided long ago that they will kill Jesus. They just, because of the way that things are set up in Palestine at this time, don't have the ability to do it themselves. They need Rome to sign off on this, and it'd be really sweet if Rome could go ahead and take care of it, especially when it's centered around a festival, such as Passover, It says in verse 57 of Matthew 26, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered. You have the elite leadership in Jerusalem here to to decide whether or not Jesus is worthy of death. There are a number of things wrong in this passage. One it appears this hearing is going on at night. Now you could say they're trying to get it in and rush it before the Passover takes place, but that would would need them to behave in a virtuous manner, but it looks from the way that they treat Jesus throughout this that they are willing to break their own rule. It says no capital crimes will be discussed at night. They're gonna break it. We've got to rush this now. And Peter was following him at a distance and as far as, he, uh, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Such a pregnant phrase there, to see the end. We'll talk about that more next week. But now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. They knew what they wanted to do to him. They just needed a way to do it. And so they were seeking false testimony. Now in the Jewish system, you have to have two, um, two witnesses that can corroborate one another's story. They have to tell the same story in order for it to be admissible in court. Now they have lots of people willing to lie, but... Many false witnesses came forward and they couldn't, they couldn't seal the deal. Maybe because they were all asked to just lie. It's hard to keep up with lies. It's hard to keep them straight. False witnesses, after all, care very little about the facts. Just their own agenda. They do not care about the facts. Continues, at last, two came forward. And said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Jesus did say that. He actually didn't say it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which is just fascinating to me. A little aside about how I I trust the Gospels as much as I do. This story, when Jesus said, tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days, only found in John 2. Not in any of the synoptics. Matthew gives us a detail here that he never backs up earlier up in the story. It's only affirmed in John's Gospel, which was written at least 30 years later. It, uh, to me, it just, it makes my, my spine tingle to think about the unity of the Gospels. I love little details like that. Where do you find that story? John 2. Jesus says it the first time he clears out the temple. Now that is something that could get a man in trouble to say about the Lord's house. As beautiful as it is, as special as it is, as central to the life of Judaism as it was, to say that I'm going to tear that down, that's those are dangerous words. Of course that's not what Jesus meant. He spoke at other times about this thing being torn down, but in John 2 he was talking about himself. Because he had actually already replaced all of the functions of the temple. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Two people verify the same story. Okay, now we've got a crime. We've got witnesses. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus didn't, didn't try to argue with them. He didn't try to correct them how they were skewing that thing he said about the temple. He didn't say, wait, "Wait, wait, you don't understand. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about my body." He didn't correct them. Just stands silent. He doesn't need to justify himself. False witnesses do not care about the facts. Faithful witnesses, however, don't care about the consequences of the truth. Jesus is okay with where this is going, and he's gonna stand in silence in this beautiful majesty and authority over the whole process, and he stands silent. Now, I love to think about in that moment, you know, if we were just, you know, human beings sitting there watching this thing play out, I could only imagine the, the silence being a few seconds long. Imagine if you have the infinite mind of the creator, though, and Jesus stands in silence, It's rushing through his head. They want to kill him because they don't believe that he's who he says he is. He's making claims to authority that they don't want him to have. He has been very clear that he is the Messiah and they don't believe him. He's making weird claims to be God and they don't believe him. You're you're acting like you have more authority than you do, Jesus. And in his silence, I can just imagine him saying, Do you guys not remember my baptism? My coronation when the spirit descended on me when God spoke his blessing over me? Do you not remember when I turned water into wine more than they could ever dream of and it was better than you could have ever imagined? What kind of authority does one need to do that? Do they not remember whenever I took a boy's lunch Just some loaves and a few fish, and I fed thousands. How much authority does it take to do that, Caiaphas? Jesus, just standing silent. Do they not remember whenever I'm on a boat and we're about to sink, and I tell the wind to stop? And it does. Who else has authority over nature like I do? Do they not remember whenever people come to me, their legs don't work, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they have demons, and I fix all of it by just touching them? What kind of authority do they want from me? They know very well about that man named Lazarus that I just raised from the dead the other day. What more could they want? And Jesus doesn't say a word. Stand silent. After all, he doesn't have to vindicate himself. The truth is on his side. He's sovereign over the whole process. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he has to fulfill the role of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. There are prophetic texts that he is guaranteeing they come true. Isaiah's, uh, I always call it Isaiah's gospel. Isaiah's book, I think it's very gospel-esque, so we'll go with that. Isaiah's gospel has, at the end of it, what are called these servant songs? There's four, some count five, depends on how you count them, doesn't really matter. But there's stories of this servant that God will one day send. This servant who will do the bidding of God, who will restore the people of God, and who will establish the reign of God. And it is very difficult to tell if you read through all the servant songs. Is it talking about Israel? Is it talking about David? Is it talking about David's successor? Is it talking about God? Or is it talking about some prophet? And Jesus comes in and assumes every single role. And in Isaiah 53, verse 7, it won't be on the screens. It says this He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, or like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus stands silent. Does not need to argue with them, he knows exactly what's going to happen next. He stands silent. In spite of false witness, which I always look at that and think, oh, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could be slandered, defamed. If I could, knowing I'm about to be accused of blasphemy, if I could be blasphemed against and stand silent, and yet he does, in spite of false witness. And in his silence, he also stands as a faithful witness, trusting the plan of the Father, Fully aware that Isaiah 53 is pointing to something very bloody and gruesome and important and necessary. For the Jews and for their witnesses, they push the facts aside and their agenda demands a lie. But for Jesus, he puts the danger aside. And his mission demands the truth. And he doesn't waver. It goes on. The high priest said to him, standing there silent, I adjure you by the living God. That is invoking an oath. It's invoking the name of God. Jesus has the right to stand silent. And he does not have to testify against himself. But when you invoke the name of God like this, even Jesus must speak. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. This is one of the, uh, I love Jesus for many reasons. I love him because he says annoying things like that. Caiaphas hates him, doesn't want anything to do with him, is looking for a way to kill him. He says, tell us, Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of God? He's asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Davidic king? Jesus says, yeah, just like you said, puts Caiaphas' words back in his mouth. Then he says the the deepest thing he can possibly say, and it's going to get him killed. He says, just as you have said, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, to those of us that have grown up around Scripture, that just might seem like flowery language. However, we've got to look and see, what is it that Jesus just said there? Because the charges are about to come, rapid fire. And the end is near for him because they hate him and because of what he just said. You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power won't be on the screen, but the beginning of Psalm 10, written by King David, says this. The Lord, God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's talking about Yahweh's favor on David, on his throne, and on his heirs that would one day come on the Davidic king on that, on that line of kings that would never end it says like God has spoken favor over this sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool and Jesus says but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power that moment Jesus just claimed to be the Davidic king Caiaphas didn't miss it But there have been many messiahs that have come and gone, and their claims were soon found out to be false. This isn't necessarily a capital crime. It's going to get them in a lot of trouble. But a claim to to the Davidic throne isn't, by definition, blasphemy. It's the next line that is. Coming on the clouds of heaven. This, This won't be on the screen either, but Daniel 7. Is a passage where Daniel, the prophet, is just scrambling for the right words to describe what he's seeing. You have two primary sections in Daniel 7 one where the vision of the Ancient of Days, and the second one where you have the vision of the Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days is obviously God, he's supreme over all, he's majestic, he's wonderful. The prophet is running out of good words to describe him. The human language is insufficient to describe what he's seeing. He's scrambling to tell this this story of the ancient of days. It reminds me a lot of many of the songs we sang this morning. It seems like we're brushing up against something holy and perfect, and our words just don't quite cut it, but they're beautiful all the same. That's Daniel 7. He describes the ancient of days and how perfect and brilliant he is. And then in verse 13, the next vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Okay? Um, Innocent enough, but we know immediately that Jesus is identifying as this son of man. Okay? If we're only halfway through verse 13, that doesn't seem so harmless. Continues though, And this son of man, he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Tell me the difference between the son of man and the ancient of days. In terms of their prerogative, in terms of their sovereignty, in terms of their control and power and majesty, what's the difference? And Jesus just said, the son of man, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. He just claimed to be divine right in Caiaphas' face. The Gospels are one big story of Jesus walking around with a death wish. You do not talk like he talks if you're unwilling to die for it. He's trying to get himself killed. Verse 65, back in Matthew 26. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And the council answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, if you're Peter in the courtyard, if you're anyone else within earshot, if you are in any way affiliated with Jesus, it appears as though things are going horribly wrong. (laughs) the wheels are coming off, the end is close, and we've lost. They're gonna kill him. But if you're Jesus, who has the ability to stand there in silence, this is exactly how it was planned. He knows what he's doing, not a single word that he utters falls down, and he knows how to get himself killed on purpose. So we have to ask the question, Is he guilty of blasphemy? Leviticus 24 is the specific law in the Old Testament about blasphemy. And it it talks about defaming the name of God. It talks about doing a disservice and reviling the name of God. It talks about it as a capital crime. So they're not crazy that this is a serious thing to do. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has been accused of blasphemy. In John 5, he heals a man out of a pool, the pool of Bethesda. Heals him, makes sure that he can walk, and he goes off and tells everybody, and everyone comes and says, who are you, Jesus, to have the authority to do this? He gives a list of witnesses. He says, I have actually a lot of um, things in my favor, such as the Father's testimony, John the Baptist, my works, you know, all these things. Um, the last one's the one that bothers everybody the most. He said, you know when Moses was writing um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know when he was writing those? Um, He was writing about me. And they're like, no. He says, no, he really was. He was writing about me. Actually, I existed long before him. What are you going to do about that? If he were here today, he'd worship me. What are you going to do about that? Okay, that is blasphemy to them. To revile God's name or his scriptures or his prophets who speak on his behalf is blasphemy. And Jesus just says, yeah, I'm greater than Moses. Blasphemy was the charge. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals a man, oddly enough, just to prove that he had already forgiven his sins. Who forgives sins but God alone? He was accused of blasphemy then. In Matthew 12, a man has legs that don't work, uh, or sorry, he cannot see and he cannot speak. And Jesus, he has a demon. Jesus exercises the demon, heals his eyes, looses his tongue, and they say, wow, you could only do that by the power of Satan. They're unwilling to accept that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he has the power and authority that he says he does. truth is Jesus is a blasphemer if Caiaphas is right. If Jesus is not the Messiah, if he is not God himself, he is a blasphemer for claiming that he has the power to forgive sins. He is a blasphemer for aligning himself with the son of man who gets all this rule and power from the ancient of days. He is a blasphemer. But if Caiaphas is wrong, Caiaphas is the blasphemer. Now, what do we do with a text like this? What's at stake here? Um, We could just relegate a passage like this to the category of um, historical trivia, random details about how Jesus got himself killed, important information that tells us the story of salvation and how it came about, and all that is true. But I think that there's other things for us to see. I I think in the whole story, I love Jesus. For me, Caiaphas is the most interesting person. Accuses others of blasphemy, in so doing, commits it himself. And you and I have to, at some point, answer the same question he's trying to answer. For many of you, you've already answered the question, is Jesus who he says he is? And many of you have answered that in the affirmative. Some of you still need to answer that question. But blasphemy comes in a number of forms. The first and most obvious is defaming the name of God. I don't know how many of us in here run the risk of slandering God's name. Overtly so. But if you do, one small piece of advice. Stop it. It is not okay We're not going to stone you or have Rome crucify you, but I would not want to find myself against the one whose name is Yahweh. I don't think that is one that we all struggle with too much. The second one, though, many of us struggle with manipulating the word of God. Also considered blasphemy in the Old Testament. To revile God's words. Um... Sometimes we want to twist this and bend it because it's just easier to do that than to actually change our lives. It's easier to do that than to repent of sin and commit to a lifestyle of holiness and righteousness. You know, that is a slippery slope, however, because when you do this because it's convenient, you're eventually just soft on sin. And then you've lost the ability to speak about words like holiness. And it is the long process of doing this over and over that leads us to the point where many in the church can no longer answer the question, is it really just um, one man and one woman? Can we expand the sexual ethic of the church a little bit? That comes after years of bending this to say what you want. When you do this, you'll look at the promises of Scripture. We talked about this a few weeks ago when Drew referenced Philippians 4. You'll look at them as if they are all guaranteed to you and that God owes you peace, happiness, and prosperity. That mindset comes when you just keep twisting it as much as you want. I think we're all susceptible to that. Though I trust that in this community, like to do this very long, you'll be found out and you'll be asked to, lovingly asked to stop, to treat the word of God with respect and care and to submit yourself beneath it, not the other way around. I'm comfortable with addressing that one in this congregation. The third one, though, is one I I fear I don't have an answer for. It's easy to spot someone who defames the word of God it's difficult but we can work with it when we manipulate the word of God last one though when we dismiss the son of God I think all of us have a tendency to elevate ourselves and in the process lower God a little bit create some little kingdom of pseudo sovereignty um you might not have the guts to twist scripture to say whatever you want. It might just be easier to stand over here and ignore it. You might not want to argue with brothers and sisters in the community of God. And because you're hesitant to change and you really don't want to repent and live as the Bible prescribes, you just keep the rest of us at arm's length. You don't let us in. You don't let us call each other to love and holiness. In so doing, you you dismiss the Son. I don't know where you're going to find him outside of his word and his people. I don't know. Do you guys ever come in on a Sunday morning and find that the like, worshiping well, singing those incredible songs that Kyle was leading us through this morning, that is just a little difficult. It's hard for me to muster the desire to do this. I just can't sing those words well. I can't do so with any integrity. You go around people who do love Jesus in such a way that they're willing to sacrificially follow him in obedience and they're just like, I can't do what you do. Obedience is hard. I just have all of this sin I'm still working through. Yeah, we do. We do but is the difficulty of worshiping well and is the difficulty of following God and obeying him well, is that on God or on us? Is that his fault? Has he been deficient in some way or have we failed to rightly engage with scripture? Have we dismissed the son by disengaging from his word and his people? You might say, Ryan, I think you're making a big deal out of too much. I think you're really blowing this out of proportion. You might say, I can, I can have a hard time with Scripture. I can even um, refuse to engage in it like I should and still love Jesus. I am sorry, but I believe that you have fabricated a third option in your head. And I'm calling it the myth of neutrality. I don't think such a thing exists. The New Testament just talks about Jesus as if you're completely with him or completely against him. And there is no gray area. You cannot dismiss Jesus or manipulate his scriptures or defame the name of his father and still think well of him. I'm going to hopefully illustrate this, that you are either, like Peter, a follower, or like Caiaphas, a blasphemer. I'm going to do so, I'm just going to read without commentary. Well, without much commentary. I won't be able to help myself. But I'm going to read through some passages in Revelation. I think Revelation is one of the church's most brilliant treasures. In it, we find so many key ideas to what it looks like to follow Jesus well. Revelation 12, starting in verse 9. Tell me if you see any third ways in this passages, if there's any neutral zone to be found. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is describing actually Jesus' incarnation when Satan was cast out. This is the this is the cool version of the Christmas story. (laughs) Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, John says, saying Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The very authority that Caiaphas questioned. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. The brothers have conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb, one, by Jesus' work on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation 13, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints, that's us, and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All who dwell on earth will worship it. You are either saint or a beast worshiper. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Haven't found a gray area yet. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Revelation 14, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. It doesn't seem as though you can just think fondly of Jesus and escape. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then here's that wonderful dividing line. Here, however, is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. You are either a saint or a blasphemer, a follower or an enemy. Revelation 16, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and swords. They did not repent of their deeds. Failure to repent and blaspheming the name of God seem to go hand in hand. Finally, Revelation 17. These blasphemers, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him, that's us, are called chosen, called and chosen and faithful. So, Our calling then is to stand, like Jesus, in word and in deed as faithful witnesses. That sticks and stones garbage isn't real. Words do matter. And like that A.W. Tozer quote we saw at the beginning of the service, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what you say and what you do in light of that truth It matters for everything. There is no neutrality when it comes to the kingdom. So may we speak well of God's name. Treat his word with respect and care and let it sit as an authority over us. And do everything we can not to dismiss Jesus when he speaks to us in prayer by his spirit and through the community of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful as always for your scriptures, for the life giving truth that we find in them, the life giving testimony of saints long past who you in your Holy Spirit saw fit to have them write, and for 2,000 years we have benefited. I pray that we would always turn to your word and find you in greater measures, and that we would see in you the only sovereign worth submitting to. Teach us to know you better, to love you more, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This time I'm going to ask um,
1: the elders. To come forward uh, and kind of divide up, not chips and goats, but current and to be current. On either side of me, as you know, for the last few weeks, we have been, well, last few months, we have actually been working through this process. The last few weeks, as a body, we have actually been praying for and evaluating uh, where these men are at, and your words of confirmation were truly a joy to either read or to hear uh, firsthand. Uh, Let me explain to you a little bit about kind of how this uh, all comes to be. The words of Scripture inform us. And the Apostle Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. He sent Titus to Crete. He himself did this in a number of places. But he tells Timothy and Titus, I I want you to set things in order there. I want you to set apart and to appoint men who will guard the truth, who will protect the doctrine of the church in accordance with the words of Christ and his apostles. And so we do something very special here. It's It's not magic, but it is spiritual. And so we are here right now to, uh, to challenge these men and to commission these men into the faithful service of Jesus as they serve us as the body of Christ.
2: I'd like to take just a minute, I'm going to read a charge to the men here in just a little bit, which is a simply a series of questions and statements. And if you um, agree and concur to those, if you'll uh repeat the, the phrase that, that I give you to say, but it occurred to me, and I didn't do this, this first hour, that with all the people that we have in here today, and the number of men that we have here, I'd like to just take a real quick second to just put a name with a face for everybody that's on the stage right now. And so, uh, to my right, your left, uh, Blaine Mayfield, Chip Parks, Jeff White, Jeff Butler, Ken Roberts, Jim Johnson, Terry Carpenter, Mark Thomas, Jeremy Redman, Mark Prather, Craig Armstrong, and my name is Joe Ogle, and then also Alan Higgins, uh, who is not here, and if you don't know Alan, he looks almost exactly like Jeff Butler, so, uh, and it's okay, I think they're both okay if you get those names back and forth, so, all right. I'm gonna read uh, a series of questions and, uh, uh, and I'll give you a response and if you concur with that statement, if you'll repeat that response for me. Do you believe that God has called you to the life and work of an elder of the people at Sunnybrook? If so, say, I do believe. Do you believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If so, say, I do believe and confess. Are you persuaded that the scriptures contain all things necessary for salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah and are the unique and authoritative standard for the church's faith and life? If so, say, I am persuaded by God's grace. Will you do your best to pattern your life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus? If so, say I will with the help of God. Will you in the exercise of your leadership calling equip the people of God to faithfully serve him and his mission? If so, say I will with the help of God. Will you commit yourself to be accountable with those serving with you under the authority of the scriptures? So say I will with the help of God. Will you, for the sake of the church's life and mission, give yourself to the glory of God through prayer, study, worship, and service? If so, say, I will, with the help of God. And now for our church body, we have a charge for you and a response for you. Will you pray for, submit to, and receive the leadership and care from your elders for God's glory and your sanctification? If so, will you say, we will, with the help of God? And I'd like to give the microphone to Terry and Mark to pray for us.
3: Bow with me in prayer. Father, what a joyous day this is uh, in the life of the church at Sunnybrook. As we, uh, as we stop and acknowledge first that you as our Lord, uh, Father, that uh, we will follow Christ at, uh, above all other things, and for these gentlemen and their families that have put those other things uh, aside to put this priority and what they feel like is a calling. God, it is a privilege for each of us and for them to get to serve you in this way. Uh, and a privilege for everyone in the congregation to get to serve you in the way that they are called. But God, for these uh, gentlemen, I pray for unity as they, um, as they grow to love uh, one another. God, I pray for wisdom that as they serve you, that they will, uh, from Scripture and from your word, that they will draw close to you and hear you as they make decisions And God also for just a love for each other as they uh, spend many days, many evenings uh, being about your business here at Sunnybrook, and we ask all this in Jesus' name.
4: Heavenly Father, we come to you just recognizing both your goodness and your greatness, and we're just so grateful for um, not just these men, but also the men of the past who have served as elders here. Just the um, direction that they provided, the guidance and the care that they have provided for this church body. And God, we, we know that, um, that you had your hand in all of that, and so we thank you for them. God, for these men and also for ourselves, uh, we just pray for insight, that they would be insightful of the things around them, that they would see things uh, truthfully and accurately. God, just for um, their time as they serve, that you would just help them to be able to build relationships and continue to build relationships, that they may be connected uh, just with the community of believers. And Father, for um, all of us, we pray, Lord, that as we lead our families and that we lead our wives, that we would do so with integrity and that we would lead well, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Before these men leave and you run out, um, let me just say this, just for a purpose uh, kind of a point of clarity, uh, we are not saying these are even the best men in our congregation. I think they're pretty great men. Um, they're not the only men who qualify as elders. They are the ones that we believe God has appointed and that God has called and that God has qualified according to the scriptures, um, and they are here to serve you. They are really here to love you. They are here to come alongside you, to speak truth to you, and for the glory of God, to hear truth. Uh, we really do love Jesus the most, but we really do love you as well. And so I pray that, uh, uh, that you will rely on the teaching and the care and the prayers of these men. Uh, so that Stillwater, but ultimately the world, but that Stillwater might know that there's something different about us. Because we're followers of Jesus. Amen? Let's be that kind of church. God bless. Go in his peace and strength, and we will see you next Sunday.